This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry. You're getting real live insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? This is Dr. Nee, the doc outside the box. Now, before I introduce my next great guest, I'm going to be really honest with y'all. I'm going to tell y'all the truth about something. I am not a big fan of corporatized medicine. Now, as we know, that, that ain't no surprise, but I'm really not a fan of doctors who really enter into the C-suite, the administrative fields of medicine, of healthcare. And it's not their fault, but from what I've seen, once a doc leaves the clinical part, they seem to lose the perspective of what we go through on a daily basis, what we go through in the trenches, as I like to say. The challenges of dealing with a lack of time, stress, not being able to see family, whatever the F you think we go through, I think they kind of lose perspective of that. Now, on the other hand, like I said, it's not their fault. They're basically docs outside the box, right? They're looking to expand their interests, their passions into another field, and they're looking to do good. I really say it's really not their fault. They're stuck in the middle. And I know that there are residents, there are young attendings who listen to this show who are looking to gain a perspective of what it's like to transition from full-time medicine into being a chief medical officer of a group or to the C-suite world. On this episode, I'm chopping it up with Dr. Peter Valenzuela. He is the creator of the comic strip that I think a lot of you are already familiar with. You may have seen it in numerous Facebook groups related to physicians. You've seen it in my group. And it's called Doc Related. It is a comic strip that takes a really satirical view on healthcare through the eyes of healthcare professionals. And I say it's a combination of Dilbert and that meeting, the TV show, The Office. And I think it's really funny. And it's really on point. Okay. Now, besides being the creator of Doc Related, Peter is also a chief medical officer of a large multi-specialty group in California. And he's been recognized nationally as a physician leader, as well as an educator. He's on this show to really talk about not just Doc Related and the inspiration behind that, because I think it's really interesting, but also to talk about his transition from clinical medicine to the C-suite. And he's going to give us a perspective that I definitely didn't know anything about. I'm not going to lie. He's changed my opinion on the way how I normally initially looked at physicians within the administrative field. Share this episode with someone who you think is interested in transitioning into administrative medicine. It's going to be a good one. It definitely changed my mind on what it's like to be a chief medical officer and those alike. Without further ado, I present Dr. Peter Valenzuela. Let's get to it. Dr. Peter Valenzuela, creator of Doc Related, 
Welcome to Docs Outside the Box. What's good? What's up? How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here, Nick. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. I'm looking forward to having you on the show. I think we communicated a little more than a year ago when uh, I think you started telling me about your comic strip. I was taking a look at it and I thought it was really interesting and wanted to get you on the show. So I'm glad we've been able to connect now. We got a lot of stuff to dig through. People say that your comics are almost like Dilbert, you know, for medical yeah. comics. Yeah. I kind of feel like it's almost like The Office almost. <laughs> you know, if you can look at that office analogy from the TV show, but it's yeah. really interesting, your comics. Actually, before we get into that, let's learn a little bit about you. Dr. Peter, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Let's learn more about that. Sure. I was born and raised in West Texas. Funny because um, when I do podcasts like this, sometimes my Southern drawl comes out. When you hear a drawl, it's either because I'm nervous, I'm tired, or I'm drunk. And uh, it's a little too early for any kind of drink. If you catch a little bit of that, then it's probably one of the other two. Dr. Peter, um, it is but, happy hour somewhere in the world. Five <laughs> <laughs> o'clock somewhere, right? We can make it happen anytime, okay? <laughs> yeah, there you go, man. Morning mimosas. That's a good way to start the day. But seriously, I was actually born in uh, West Texas. I was born in Odessa, which most people know is the home of Friday Night Lights. And uh, I grew up in a small town south of there, and uh, the population is about 7,000 people. When I graduated high school, I went to college at the University of Texas, Cookham Horn, and then I went to a medical school in Dallas at UT Southwestern. And I finished up in a rural residency track for family medicine at John Peter Smith in Fort Worth. UT Southwestern is a huge training facility. I think yeah. it has one of the yeah. largest surgery programs on there. I've yep. talked to multiple people there. We had Dr. Brian Williams on the show who was in a town yeah. there. How did you go from that situation to decide to go to rural? Because that's a big jump. I grew up in a small town and I actually had one of those scholarships where if you'd agree to come back home, they'd pay off your, your medical school loans. I always kind of knew I wanted to practice in a small town. It's funny when I think of UT Southwestern, it was great training. You know, it's Parkland Hospital. I mean, you do trauma, so I'm sure you know a lot about Still, he was there. I, I still remember one experience I had with our trauma attending. He was just kind of really kind of burly guy. And, and, you know, we're med students and the two of us are standing there with the team. And he kind of looks at me and says, you, what's your name? And I said, uh, I'm stumbling through my name. And he says, uh, okay, Valenzuela, you tell me, what are all the branches off of the ascending aorta? And I want you to give them to me in order. He looked at my buddy and he said, you tell me all the branches of descending aorta in, in order. And we both kind of, we were nervous, obviously. I mean, you know this stuff, but you get nervous and you stammer through it. And he just looks at us and he goes, man, how do you two sleep at night knowing so little? <laughs> and I still remember that. I'm like, dude, this is hard times. Now we're in the show. They don't play around with you, you know. They want you to know everything at the right time. It's funny that you mentioned that story. I'm like, that's tough. And I actually thinking about it. I was like, it could actually be much worse than that. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. He that's took it easy. It. I mean, but you know. It was expected. Oh, and that's the sad part is the attendings pimp you and then that's how you learn. But nowadays, obviously, that's not really acceptable behavior, but the way that you train at the time. So, yeah, after I finished medical school, I went to John Peter Smith. And the reason I picked that program is because the doctors there learned to do everything. So when I got out of there, I went back home and I practiced and I was doing EGDs, colonoscopies, C-sections, tubal tonsils, appies. As you know, I did in Oh, you yep. was, was family medicine. Family. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so my town was about 7,000 people. There's about five docs there, two surgeons, a family medicine doc, an internal medicine doc, a pediatrician, and then myself. We were kind of the team. You did what you had to. ER visits, inpatient, outpatient, home visits, nursing home. It was a lot of work, but I got to tell you, man, that was probably 
when I love medicine the most, you're just doing it a little bit of everything. Patients appreciate it. What was the part that you loved the most about it? I think it was feeling like at the end of the day, like I'd done something for someone. That feeling of meaning and achievement and feeling appreciated for the work that you're putting in. You know, it was a different time then. It was before we had EMRs and before all the regulatory components of what we deal with as physicians and compliance and risk management and coding aspect. It was a much different time. Mm. But sometimes I long for those days because I didn't grow up during that time. I grew up during a time when all of this stuff was full swing. It'd be really interesting to kind of time travel back to the days that you're talking about. Going from that, how did you end up in Cali? Well, I always feel like I was the Goldilocks person. I did five years in my rural town. And my wife, who I've been married with for, it'll be 20 years this year. She was from Dallas. Yeah, so I was coming from Dallas and moving to a town with 7,000 people where the nearest movie theater is like 100 miles away. It was pretty tough. After five years of living there, and along the way, by the way, which I know that you have one, but while I was down there, I actually got my MBA mm-hmm. because I realized I didn't know a lot about the business side of healthcare. My wife was doing my billing for me, and we were old oh, this school. Is family, this is a family affair. This was family medicine, man, and my wife was doing my billing for me. And two years into practice out there, I realized I didn't know the business aspect. I went to Auburn. I'd fly out there every three months for a week at a time. And I did an MBA program with about 20 other physicians from across the country. It took me about two years to get it done, but I got it done and it really helped me. It helped my practice. It helped me understand some components that I wouldn't have thought what thought of otherwise. I read an article where they interviewed you about the MBA and how it's impacted you. And I I just kind of smiled because it was very similar to me. You were smart enough to get it while you were in training. I ended up having to get it afterwards. But once I got my MBA, I started getting headhunters reaching out to me saying, we're looking for physicians with business backgrounds to help us with this and help us with that. And after five years of practicing rural medicine, my wife and I kind of gathered ourselves and I'd already paid off, been forgiven for my loan. And we decided to move to another part of West Texas for me to take on a role in an academic center. I was the assistant dean for clinical affairs. Basically, I oversaw the operations of about 11 clinics with the Texas Tech Health System and really enjoyed that. And I became the chair of the family medicine residency training program while I was there. We did that for about four years. And as much as we loved it because we were close to family and everything, we just kind of, you know, my wife and I don't have any kids. And we thought, oh, there's got to be something different maybe that we're missing that we have to really enjoy. We're both native Texans, didn't know much about anything. And and one summer, we took this cruise from Seattle to Alaska. It was inside past cruise. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Pacific Northwest in the summertime, but man, it is beautiful. And so we actually fell in love with the Pacific Northwest and kind of jokingly said, if the job opened up out there, we'd, we'd take it. And, you know, I got to say, we, we within a year, I found a job with the integrated health system up in the Pacific Northwest, north of Seattle. And I took on the role of medical director and eventually became the VP of the Northwest Network for the organization. We loved is it out it, there. Is but it, Is it safe to say you became a suit man? I became a suit man, but without a tie. Because, you know, in the Northwest, we don't wear ties on the West Coast. So there gotcha. you go. I so still let, practice medicine. Yeah. Okay. So you still practice medicine. You're still in the trenches. But tell me about that experience of being in West Texas. 
right? Practicing Mm -hmm. in a city as big as 7,000 people doing all those different things and compare and contrast that to what it was like going north of Seattle and what that by then, I'm sure that being naive and wanting to save the world one patient at a time had dwindled by then, I'm I'm going to assume. But what was your mindset (laughs) then? Were you jaded at all? Like, how did you feel about that stuff? Yeah, you know, it was different, definitely for sure. I went from practicing full-time in my previous job when I was doing small town practice to about 50% of the time when I became the chair of a residency training program, as well as the assistant dean for health or uh, clinical affairs, to practicing 20% of the time when I took on this role. So I was doing 80% administrative. But a part of me really missed the clinical care. My favorite days were those half days that I was in clinic. But the other part of me thought doing that day-to-day care really helps me take care of those patients individually, one at a time. But being in the role that I'm in now, I can actually do more of a broader population of care for a bigger population of patients. Because we were instituting service lines and ancillary services and support systems to care for populations instead of just that one patient that I took care of in front of me. It helped me see that. I have to say that was also the first time that I really opened my eyes to the organizational disconnect of big health systems. Because what you don't know when you're on the physician pray, side... Pray tell, Dr. Peter, pray tell. Yeah. So, you know, when you're on the physician side, you think everybody's on the same page and it's all about the patient. But when you sit on the other side of the table, it changes. Yeah, it's about patient care, but it's also about the growth of your population. It's also about the strategies you develop. It's also about the finances and the numbers. And I got to tell you, those finances and numbers play a much bigger role than most physicians think. When you're in the clinics and you're asking for medical assistance or staff support, as a physician, you assume it's not going to be too difficult to make it happen. But when you're on the administrative side, you end up having to jump through all kinds of hoops to see if you can make that happen. And you have to justify it. Well, let me ask you this question, because everybody wants to know this question. Everybody asks this question. Everybody has this thought process. Let's look at doctors on the left-hand side. Let's look at executives on the right-hand side, right? You've been on both sides. A lot of times there appears to be a disconnect. It feels though the left side doesn't know what's going on with the right side. The right side doesn't know what's going on with the left side. Do you believe, is that true since you've been there? (laughs) Let's see if I can answer that carefully. I think I've been in some organizations where actually the doctor's are the leaders of the organization. And you've seen, you know, statistically and nationally, when you measure quality and provider satisfaction and patient outcomes, organizations that are physician-led, i.e. their CEOs are physicians that maybe have an MDA or that are still practicing, those score much higher, over 26% higher in outcomes and quality than organizations that are not physician-led. So I think that if you can find the right people that's got the skill set on both sides of the table, you can actually be in a pretty good company, pretty good organization, but it's not as common. That's a very small percentage across the U.S. Dr. Peter, taking a political answer. I appreciate it. I'm telling you, man. I hope I answered it without without answering it completely. <laughs> yeah, I, I see what you're going. I see where you're going. Okay. From my perspective as a physician, I oftentimes feel like there's a huge disconnect. At least from my perspective, I haven't been in the higher ranks of hospital administration, but I oftentimes feel like they don't understand what's going on down in the trenches. And and obviously, I'm going to be fair. It's obvious the other way also. It was interesting. I wanted to get your perspective on that. It's really interesting, your thought process on that. Let's fast forward a little bit. Before we move forward, I want to comment on one thing. Sure. um, And then we can close it out. One of the examples that I found of organizational disconnects with some health systems is that there was a survey done by the Experience Innovation Network that showed that only 16% of healthcare 
organizations consider their strategic decision on the resilience and well-being of those people affected, which means some companies make decisions. They really don't think about who's going to be affected by it within their company, what that's going to mean for them. So that was kind of eye-opening for me when I was reading that survey. Okay. All right. What prompted you to start your doc-related, the comic strip? Because you have a really interesting perspective, obviously a perspective that I think a lot of physicians, a lot of practitioners feel, (laughs) whether it's true or not or validated or not. But I think there's a lot of physicians when they read your comic strip, they're just like, man, I feel just like that. I feel like he's talking right to me. What was the genesis? What made you decide to start doing this? About a little over two years ago, I was sitting at a conference and it was a leadership conference with physicians as well as non-physician leaders. And this was a big conference. I won't name the organization or what national conference it was, but it was really big. And one of the topics that we were talking about was dashboards. How are health systems and organizations measuring success, right? And most of the organizations said, well, we have a provider satisfaction dashboard. And then, you know, I thought, man, that's pretty cool. I'm glad that they're considering the positions and the dashboard. And so when we dove into it, the way that they were scored on their dashboard was based on the number of positions that responded to the survey of provider satisfaction. So I asked, I said, well, what did you guys do with the finding or with the feedback from the survey from the providers? And they said, oh, no, no, that's not our dashboard. Our dashboard is just on response rates. We don't really do anything with the feedback. We just want to know that we got over 80% of the docs to respond. So basically, I looked just, over just at respond the, and not looking at the actual Yeah. Response. Man, I looked over at the guy next to me. I said, man, you can't write comics about this. I mean, you can joke about this. This is crazy. But that's actually a live thing that I experienced. And that inspired that whole, you know what? This is comical. I mean, it's frustrating, but it also can be very funny. So I started drawing comics just as an approach to say, I want to raise the awareness without making it a Debbie Downer, but also letting people know that these are the things that are happening nowadays. So just for the record, you draw this yourself. Yeah, actually, I drew them myself. I created all the characters and I did everything else. And one of the hacks that I learned was I've actually met somebody that draws, you know, even better than I do. And so I started partnering with him where I would do the scripts and the settings and everything. And he would kind of draw the characters for me. And that's because he did them a lot faster. It took me a long time to do my scripts because being physicians, you tend to be perfectionists and you want the color of the tie to be right. And you want this to look this way and this way. And I was actually, it was like procrastination, man. It took me forever to do one. How long? And then I found somebody. How long was it taking you? Um, I'd probably do like an hour a day and then I'd reevaluate it a couple of days and then I wouldn't like the background. It really just kind of, I was too critical. And then I met this one person online that I knew did comics and I reached out to him and man, he was throwing them out like in an hour. And I was thinking, you know, what took me five hours is taking him one hour. And I realized that if I partnered with him, he could actually do some of this and I could focus on what I'm trying to say. What is it I'm trying to communicate? What does it work really well? What is it that you're trying to communicate? Because I think it's pretty obvious from reading it that there's a common theme that you're going for within these comic strip, but can you verbalize that for us? What's the common theme? What's the common thread among all of these comics? I think for me, I wanted to raise awareness about organizational disconnects between healthcare physicians and administrators on what to do best for patients. To simplify it, it's the challenges of practicing medicine today as seen through the eyes of people that take care of patients. 
Hey docs, there's a saying, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably on the menu. Now's the time to define your future by being a part of the Physician CEO program. Physician CEO is a business immersion program developed by MBA faculty from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. You're getting an intensive MBA style education made up of modules that cover topics like leadership, entrepreneurial ventures, and everybody's favorite, branding. And guess what? This program is designed for busy physicians like yourself who don't have time for an MBA, but still want to be a better version of yourself. Trust me, the program gets you in focus from day one. So get those skills needed to lead a hospital or start a new venture. You're always going to ensure that there's an open seat waiting for you at the table. Don't miss this opportunity because class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Now, when you first came out with your strip, and I'm sure you showed it to some of your colleagues, what was their initial impression? Let's take it from the physician side. And physicians loved it. I got to say, my largest population of followers are physicians, and they really enjoyed it. And you're right. I'd have some go, man, were you just in my clinic last week? Because that happened to me. (laughs) And it just kind of spoke to the fact that no matter where you are in the U.S., if you're working within employed models, you're probably experiencing some of these challenges and headaches. What about the response from execs? Because you've spoken at MGMA. You've been at different meetings where you get to see different executives. And I'm sure they've seen your work. They've seen you published in various digital media. What's their response to what you have to draw? Well, it's been kind of a mixed bag. I have some people who understand that this is humor and then I'm just being using satire to point challenges out. And I actually have a good following of managers and nursing staff as well. I have other administrators who are actually offended and think that my comics are being divisive and that I am trying to show the physicians more as martyrs and them as bad guys. So it's been a mixed bag. How do you feel about that when they tell you that? What's your thoughts? Having sat on both sides of the table, you know, I've always had a sense of humor I don't see anything that would be offensive to anyone in particular about what I write. I think it is what it is. I know that I had read a little bit about the person that created Dilbert. And I know that when he started doing Dilbert, his bosses weren't really excited about it either. And I think that, unfortunately, some people understand what I'm writing is just a way of communicating something. Others see it as an attack. And I'm not sure how to really respond to those that feel like they're being attacked other than to say this isn't about any one person or any one organization. This is about the challenges of practicing medicine today in the United States as seen by those that are doing it. Let me ask you this question. Do you think if you had an opportunity, if this idea had come up to you while you were back in West Texas, do you think you would have been drawing these comics? It's really interesting because it seems like you were really idealistic when you were in Texas. And then once (laughs) once you started making it up the ranks, Let me know if I'm speaking for you or not, but it's kind of interesting. Do you think this is kind of a result? Your comics are a result of just kind of just seeing medicine from a different perspective now? I honestly, I think you hit it on the head. When I was practicing small town medicine, I loved it. There was headaches with sometimes with administration, but for the most part, those weren't issues. You know, again, I was seeing patients at least 80% of my days. I wasn't spending 50% of it charting in an EMR. I wasn't focused on what the exact code was so that I could catch the right HEDA score. It wasn't about RAP scoring and the other thing. 
I think that part of the reason the comics have evolved, number one, is because I did get my business degree and I started looking at healthcare through a different lens. And number two, because the way we practiced 20 years ago and the way we practice today is very different. If I'd have been experiencing all that while I was in practice full time, maybe I would have done a comic about it, but I wasn't. I mean, now we've got risk and compliance and legal and HIPAA and EMRs, you know, and administrative aspects that most people don't have to deal with before. We've got a lot of younger listeners, pre-medical students, even just pre-health students and med students out there and residents. And you are currently a chief medical officer at a large specialty group in Cali. Can you describe what exactly a chief medical officer does? And also even just throw in what your quality of life is like now compared to if you were just practicing full time as a family medicine doctor. The chief medical officer, I have uh, multiple responsibilities. The first one is really the day-to-day operations of the care centers and the groups. And I work in partnership with an executive, a non-physician executive. And we have about 20 plus clinics and care centers that we oversee. It's over 120 plus physicians and clinicians. So we make sure that they have the staff support and infrastructure to be able to take care of patients. But we're also in charge of things like individual behaviors, performance of our physicians and staff kind of strategies of how to grow the service lines better and growth and making sure that we're able to pay the bills, the financial, making sure that we're capturing everything that we're doing the right way and also focusing on quality because we're responsible for the quality aspects too. So it's kind of the, the quality, the finance, the performance, the operations, and then individual behaviors. Before in the past or the recent past, your comics have been described, quote unquote, as the Dilbert for healthcare. Was that the look that you were looking for when you first started your comic strip? Or was there other types of inspiration? Were there other comics that you're trying to mimic? Yeah, actually, it's a great question. There was three comics that I appreciated the, the look of the characters and the way they communicated. And it was Beetle Bailey, shows you my age, but Beetle Bailey was one. The other one was Archie. Nice. And then the third, did you read Archie? Yeah. yeah. And the third was Dilbert. Yeah, man, they're, they're good stuff. I really enjoy all of them. And so what I wanted to do was find characters and create characters that had that look and feel of a blend of the three of them, because those are the ones that I like the appearance of the characters. Where do you see this comic strip? Let's say in the next two to three years, what's big? Hmm. Well, I think for me, yeah, I've had a lot of feedback from people that like the comics, but they don't know enough about healthcare or the message. And they'll reach out to me and say, hey, I, I, man, that last one was pretty funny, but what inspired you to do that? And then when I explain the situation, it really makes it even that much funnier. And eye-opening, they're like, really? Are you serious? You guys really have to do this? Or, man, are you kidding? You really have to deal with this? And so what I'm thinking of doing is actually doing, you know, I was reviewing one of your podcasts with uh, Mike Natter. Man, that guy's got skills. And yeah. one of the things he talked about doing was making a graphic novel where he mixes his art with writing and literature. And I've actually thought of eventually developing kind of a semi-comic book, semi-messaging, you know, narrative that explains some of the headaches that, that both sides, administration and physicians are dealing with with healthcare. So I'd have the comics as my animation and then have explanations as to what those are and what they mean. Mm, okay. Well, I'm excited for it because I'd love to see this get more mainstream because I do think the comics are really funny. I do think that at least to me, I feel like they speak to me because I've been in so many of those different situations. Like, you know, the one that's really hilarious, I think, is the one about the MA and the doctor's like asking for something and he's just like, forget it, I'll just get it done. 
or even when, <laughs> you know, when the EMR system goes down, like everybody administration is like, oh man, like the EMR system went down, whereas everybody else is like, all right, paper charting, we're excited. I think there's definitely space for more of your strip. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, when pre-meds take a look at it, when med students take a look at it, or even residents, like, what do you normally tell them? Because, you know, oftentimes it can be, it's satirical, right? Mm-hmm. But also it paints a picture sometimes of, let's just say it paints a picture that can be opposite to the idealistic way that we kind of look at medicine, right? Like, how do you keep them positive after looking at your comics? Well, you know, when I created my characters, I tried to think of the people that would be reading it and how I could relate to them. So I have, my favorite character is, is Dr. Katz. And Dr. Katz is this baby boomer guy that, you know, was in private practice and he sold his practice to this group and now he's part of it. And so, he, you know, he's old school. He started on paper. He wants to finish on paper. He's just real skeptical. Then I have actually more like uh, Gen Xers, you know, people that really have learned how to deal with it, but didn't start there. And then I actually have millennial. I have millennial physicians that I have as characters too. And so I try to give the perspective of what each of them would think and how they would feel. I think physicians and medical students and, and residents right now, they're just trying to get through the studies. They're just trying to learn the medical knowledge they need to be successful. But what they don't learn is once they get out and they, they join organizations and become employed, I mean, there's things like understanding insurance plans that you're going to have to deal with. There's things like advanced beneficiary notices and all this stuff they don't really hear a lot about that you're going to have to learn. And it's not to jade them from practicing medicine. It's to help them understand that there's going to be a few headaches here and there when you go into practice that, that you're going to have to learn. I did one on where two millennial physicians are getting trained on insurance plans. And the whole comic is about HMO versus PPO versus EPO and making sure that if the person's not has an HMO but doesn't have this, not to order these labs. But if they have a PPO, you can do this, but you have to have an ABN just in case they don't. And the two millennials are looking at each other and they're texting each other and they're saying, what is she talking about? And the other one texts back that says, IDK. I don't know. You know, so it's just kind of that stuff <laughs> that I do. Alphabet soup, basically. Yeah, exactly. That's right. You've been in this game long enough to see, like you said, baby boomers, right? And I'm assuming we're in the same generation, Gen Xers. And now yeah. we have millennials who are entering into the picture or, you know, starting to get their foothold into the medical picture. A lot of times millennials get a bad rap, right? I just want to know, what are your thoughts on millennial physicians who are now in the game and compare and contrast them to like your generation and the baby boomer generation? Because I have my opinion on them, actually, but I'd like to hear sure. your, your opinion first. All right, let me see how I say this without offending anybody. Keep it real. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to say, I've learned a lot from millennials. One of the things you and I had touched on is they're fearless. They put their mind to something, they're going to try it. I think for Gen Xers and baby boomers, we've just kind of said, this is the career you're going to do and you're going to do it for the rest of your life. And there's no other option. I feel you know? the same way. When I see millennials and they're like, you know, I'm kind of dabbling with this and I just started doing that and I created this and I opened up a store here. And I think that's fantastic. The other thing that I think millennials have a, a jump on us you know, as Gen Xers and baby boomers is really being able to, to delineate their work-life balance. In our careers, I can tell you, man, I don't do much clinic, but when I do clinic that evening, I'm in Epic making sure the labs are back. And if they're back to message the patient, I'm really worried about it. And I take it on. And even though it's after hours, I'm still dealing with it. We have some millennials that are very clear about saying, look, this is the hours I like to work. These are the shifts that I want to do. And this is the kind of the expectations I have of the job. 
And I think that baby boomers and Gen Xers had been a lot stronger about that during our careers. And when we were at that age, we probably wouldn't be dealing with some of the headaches we are now because they're not very tolerant about that work-life imbalance that most of us have right now. Dr. Peter Preach, I love this. Yeah, man. We actually think alike. You actually epitomize what I think and how I feel. You stole my thunder. So I feel the same way. I think they've been... (laughs) I think they've been a really big positive benefit. I guess I'm at the edge of Gen X into millennial. I think I'm like the last year of a Gen Xer, I think. I just see what they bring to the game and they are very aggressive about being excellent at patient care as well as a patient's quality of life. But also at the same time, they care about their quality of life also. And they verbalize things that I thought that I couldn't say when I was in training, right? And I find there's a little bit of an envy there also that I have, you know, and I'm glad that they've been mm-hmm. able to verbalize it and make it a little bit easier for us and the generations behind us, you know, to kind of verbalize those thoughts also. Glad to know that you kind of feel the same way. So we are at the end of this interview. We've got some fast fire questions. Just going to ask you some questions. You tell me what comes off the top of your head. You game? Sure. Go for it. All right. So look, we covered a lot of things. What's the one thing that you want people to learn from this podcast? I think the one thing I want people to know is that we always focus on being patient-centric. And I think what we need to start understanding is that there's a lot of work that goes into that on the back end. I want people to understand what it looks like behind the curtain to be able to be that patient-centric and who's doing the work. Mm. Okay. I love it. Knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you have given yourself as a pre-med? I would say, don't do it. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I would say is something that I mentioned to you earlier. I would say get to know a lot as much as you can about the non-clinical aspects of medicine as you can early on. Meaning, if you're at a school that's got an MBA program or an MHA program or an MTH program, try to do dual because that's going to help you so much in the future. I kind of did it the opposite way. I went into practice, realized what I didn't know, and had to jump back in and learn it all and get my MBA a few years after I was in private practice, which was a lot more difficult than if I had tried to do this ahead of time and understood my gaps in what I didn't know about medicine awesome. you know, or non-medicine care, I should say. That's some good advice. So what is a personal habit that you have right now that has helped you to be more successful? Kind of one of these guys that wakes up at five in the morning, you know, routinely. You know, I'm a morning person. My wife's a night person. So the understanding we have is on weekends, when I get up in the morning, I can do all the work that I need to, which tends to be the comics, you know, and other stuff. And as soon as she wakes up in the morning, usually about eight o'clock, nine o'clock, I'm done. I'm done for the weekend doing that kind of work. And we spend the day together. So it's really being the morning hack person and having priority and focus on getting stuff done. Love it. And looks like you got some synergy with your wife also. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know if this applies to you, but if there's someone that you find inspirational, someone that you admire, name a person that fills any of those two categories that you wouldn't mind trading places with just for 24 hours? Yeah, no brainer. Jules Verne, you know, Jules. I love Jules Verne. He's it's, the, you know, the gentleman, uh, short character, ball headed from the movies, right? Jules Verne is a guy that wrote Around the World in 80 Days, Journey to the Center of the Earth, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Damn you know, this guy was, well, that's all right, man. That's cool. There is actually a Jules Verne that's very similar to that. But this guy's like 1860s guy that he wrote operas, he wrote novels, he wrote poems, he went to law school, and he's the, the modern father of science fiction. This guy was creating 
airplanes and spaceships in the 1860s. One of my favorite quotes from him was, he said, anything one can imagine, another man can make real. So if you can imagine it in your head, there's going to be someone else that's going to come down the road that's going to create it. And I think that's a really good model to live by. You know, it doesn't restrict you to what you're doing in your current circumstances or in your current occupation. It really kind of opens your eyes to saying, man, if you can have somebody that can do a little bit of everything like that, just imagine if you tried doing a little bit of that yourself. Mm, it's a good point. I love it. All right, Dr. Peter, what's one life hack or even a piece of technology that you are using right now that makes your life easier? I like to write articles and make presentations, but I'm, again, you've already heard me say I'm a critic about everything that I do. And I used to spend a lot of time editing my stuff and rewriting it. And I found this software. It's called Pro Writing Aid. And what you do is you just put in whatever you wrote into this software, and it tells you how many grammatical mistakes you had, how many run-on sentences you had, how many uh, use of too many adjectives, use of cliches. It's fantastic. And it actually has helped me improve my writing skills because of things that I wasn't thinking about. I didn't have formal literary training. This is just something I've done on the side. But that pro writing aid has been awesome for me. Okay. Make sure we put a link in the show notes. Love it. All right. Well, Dr. Peter, I want you to complete this sentence. I'm not just a doc. I'm a... I'm not just a doc. I'm a cartoonist, comedian, and creative. Boom. I love it. Dr. Peter Valenzuela, creator of Doc Related. Thank you so much for being on Docs Outside the Box, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Nee. Really enjoyed it, man.